this is a classic because we get to watch our lead female write her own love story. This is a classic because we finally have a woman prankster at the center of the action. This is a classic because the clowns have clowns. Hello, and welcome to This is a Classic, the Expand the Canon theater podcast. We're your hosts. Mary Candler, founder of Hedgepig Ensemble Theater and a curator for Expand the Canon. And me, Emily Lyon, artistic director of Hedgepig and a curator for Expand the Canon. Expand the Canon is a program of Hedgepig Ensemble, a Brooklyn-based company that reimagines the classics, creating a legacy of storytelling with gender equity at its core. And today we have two exciting things for you. Number one, we're looking at The Frolics by Elizabeth Polwheel from our 2021 Expand the Canon list, which you can find at expandthecanon.com. And two, for the first time on our main episode, we have special guests. Two of our ensemble members, Sarah Himes and Gregory John Phelps, recently directed the as far as we know, only production ever of Woo. this play. Woo. So naturally, we want to have them on this episode to dig into the very little known early modern classic that is the Frolics, Sarah and Greg. Yeah, hi. Thanks for having us. I'm Sarah. I'm an actor, musician, educator, director, model, dog mom that might be the most important one i had a blast working on this play uh with greg and i'm really excited to talk about it with y'all today uh and hi everyone my name is gregory john phelps i am also a new york-based actor musician and dog dad as well as a few other multi-hyphenates this play is a pretty wild one and i'm excited about it and after everyone listens to this podcast i really hope it gets produced more Amazing. Well, welcome, welcome, both of you. It's so exciting to have you here. And it's also so exciting to have another one of these plays on stage performed, especially because it's probably the first time ever. But Sarah and Craig, I'd love to know, like, how did this come about? Had this world premiere, maybe probably come about? Do you want to take this one? No, it's all you. I got to take us back to, I think, August or maybe even the summer. We both worked professionally at the American Shakespeare Center in Stanton, Virginia, which for many, many years has been closely affiliated with Mary Baldwin University. And we're very close friends with a lot of the faculty in both the undergrad and grad programs at the university. Also because you like met there? We did. We did. We were, we were on stage together. We met there and now we're married. <laughs> Same spoiler. But yeah. So that's so we have a you know a little piece of our heart in this small tiny town. We ended up actually getting married in this town as well. So we have a lot of close connections here. A few of our close colleagues that we know down here that we've been working with, they had reached out to us last summer and they generously wanted to discuss or offer a position um, for the fall semester as Mary McDermott Fellowship guest artists, and that involves directing an early modern play of our choice, which was cool. And they knew about Hedgepig and Expand the Canon because again, colleagues slash friends, right? It had been on their radar and they were excited about it. So 
when they said you can pick a play, whatever play you want to direct, the ball's sort of in your core. Our first instinct was to see what we might be able to produce off of the Expand the Canon list. It was a very exciting email to get, I will say, when Greg and Sarah reached out and were like, Sue, I know we haven't published the 2021 list yet. We were kind of, I think, getting close to narrowing it down. But, you know, what maybe are some plays that we're thinking about? So, yeah, y'all sent us maybe half a dozen. We read another, I don't know, four to six on top of that. I think Greg and I like read maybe a dozen plays over the course of four days. Um, Yeah, it was a close call. It was between a couple, but the Frolics was the one that just like kept us cracking up. And like, it was unbelievable how sharp and witty the language seemed. A lot of it was like ready made, like ready to go. So we just sort of followed that joy. For anyone out there that is like, yes, I want to do an expand the canon list play or an adjacent play, something that we've read that didn't quite make it to the list, but is still really excellent, reach out to us. We would love to consult with you on picking the right play for the season that you dream. So this is loosely how we pitched this play to Sarah and Greg, and this is now the pitch on our website. If you're looking for an early restoration play with even more hijinks and Merry Wives of Windsor, consider this energetic body comedy that centers around a tricksy courtship of the clever Clarabelle and the rakish Rightwit. Through a series of deceptions, plots, pranks, and manipulations, they find a way to be together and manage to marry off everyone else in the cast as well. Complete with doltish country suitors, deceitful women, trusting husbands, untrusting fathers, and trendy dances, this play covers all the best staples of the Restoration. The plot itself is simple, and yet the events that lead us along the way are delightfully frothy, foolish, and fun. Some nice alliteration in there. Bonus point for alliteration. There's so right. much alliteration in there. I was really, <laughs> really quite good impressed job. by it as I went. Yeah. You know, one of the challenges we often have at Expand the Canon is that if a play doesn't have a production history, there mm. often hasn't been very much scholarship done on the play. But this is a fascinating exception where this has never been produced until Sarah and Greg did it, we think. But... The amazing Judith Milhouse and Robert D. Hume actually did a scholarly edition of this play, which you can read online for free. I wrote down as I was reading their introduction that they said, the action is hard to summarize, but easy to follow. (laughs) And I think that's going to be very true of this what happens in this plot section. It is actually really easy to follow, we promise, even though it sounds like total shenanigans. Yeah, interestingly, Judith and Robert, our scholars, also noted that there was one impossible costume change. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So uh, I think you found it. How did you deal with that? So we basically like switched their costumes on stage as they were hatching the plan. Clarabelle and Filario went out one door and Rightwit literally like went out of one door and came back in the other with an accent and a hat on, <laughs> like ready to that was about it. Yeah. deceive everyone. Hopefully at that point in the play, I mean, that's that's pretty deep in act four. We've uh, mm-hmm. you know been granted the, the allowance to have a little bit of theater magic. And the audience mm-hmm. is hopefully along with us for the ride for so far. So we can just do a little bit of, uh, don't look over here, look over here. I do think it is worth 
noting what an interesting challenge Sarah and Greg would have had working on the Blackfriars stage, which is not the type of theater space that Elizabeth Polwheel would have been imagining. You know, she would have been looking at a stage with a lot of moving panels where scenes could shift instantaneously to a totally different location. And you'll notice in this plot summary that there's a lot of short scenes. We move really rapidly Mm. place to place to place to place. And uh, y'all had to do some heavy lifting on that Blackfriars stage to make that more possible and create that kind of cinematic feel that this play almost has just in terms of the stagecraft of the day. Yeah, Sarah had a couple of really great ideas in terms of that. First of all, we had a like a street sign, which had a lot of different things like the tavern is this way. And just to make sure that everyone knows like what's outside, what's on the street, and then what's inside. So that was that was just a simple little theatrical convention that I think really helped to tell the story, especially like you said, with all those very quick short scenes. I'm also going to just put a brief plug in for our cut of this play, which you can find at expandthecanon.com, where we have tried to make some of these scenes and a few of these switches a little easier. I will say there is not a particularly great solve that I have found for that act four into act five. So grab your trench coats and find your best (laughs) accent. Yeah, right. One of the many things that drew us to this play was the archetypes, honestly, and how relatable it felt and how modern it felt based on our relative recent history of television. Mm. A lot of the same like archetypes that have survived from centuries ago with Commedia, with early modern, with restoration, with everything that led us up to now, there's still the same types of all of these archetypes. Um, still survive in our own modern nomenclature mm-hmm. today, like in our own sort of zeitgeist. Like if I say Gilligan, you know who I'm talking about. There's really only one person. And once we made that connection, I think that's what really helped to spin it into more of a reality of something that we could stage and communicate with a modern audience. Because it was a very different style coming just out of this weird, but the restoration, they hadn't been theater for a, quite some time. Sounds familiar. Yeah, right. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, almost kind of similar to today, because there's this kind of flux where everyone's like, what do people want? What do audiences want to see? What do playwrights want to write? What should we talk about? Should we talk about everything that just happened? Should we forget about everything that just happened? Should we ignore it? And I think Paul Wheel, who was an excellent student of theater, she took all of those plot devices, characters, she kind of took the best, greatest hits out of those not only characters, but scenarios and situations and jam them all together into the frolics. It's like the the goofy comedy version of a jukebox musical almost. Kind of, yeah. (laughs) I love that you made the TV comparison. One of my thoughts or pitches is, you should do this play if you're a big fan of I Love Lucy. Like there's so much of that like physical comedy, Mm -hmm. heightened romantic relationship, goofs. And I think that that's a really smart thing. Although I have to ask, wait, who is Gilligan? Who do you think is Gilligan? Oh, uh, I mean, it's it's either Zany or, or Mr. Gregory. Oh, sure, 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 sure. And when we started the process, like we were talking with our brilliant team of dramaturgs who were also cast members about where we wanted to set this, we were really leaning into like, do we want to keep it period? Do we want to put it in the roaring 20s, sort of that first wave of feminism, or we could think about putting it in the 60s. And they got really excited about the 1960s. So- once we latched onto the 1960s, Greg and I were literally on our honeymoon, like in Costa Rica at a swim up bar one day going, oh my God, this person reminds us of this person from the 1960s sitcom world. And this person reminds us of this person. And we created like this spreadsheet with our dramaturgs remotely. And that tied in really well with all the music in the play as well. 
It is a very musical play for sure. You know, there's like so many opportunities to make it just kind of a boisterous, I don't know, drunken performance in a way. <laughs> mm -hmm. Polville did a really great job of taking all of those moments where a song would be helpful or just fun. And, and it's not just frothy music, like music for the sake of music. A lot of it like drives the plot forward or makes the point that the character is trying to make. Like it's, it's intrinsically um, woven into the story. And it's not just like, and now a song randomly. Although maybe, except for the frolics. <laughs> except for the title song at the except end the of the first song. half of the show. <laughs> they say, and now musicians in this bar, play that song we all know and love so popular today called the frolics and then it, there's a stage direction that just says they all play the frolics <laughs> so we had to write that one it is a worthwhile point though because the music is very woven in um this is not something you can just snip and avoid getting a composer or a music director like you really do need these people to do this play I would love to hear Sarah and Greg, what's your pitch what would be your like elevator pitch to help Elizabeth mm -hmm. Polwheel out I would say that companies should absolutely produce this play, mostly if they are excited about telling a story where the lead female is actively the hero or the shero of her own love story. It's really exciting to watch it all unfold. I mean, there's nothing more to be said. I mean, what else can you say about Clarabelle? Like, she's just such an amazing character. She outwits everyone in the entire play. Legacy. And now, what is this play about, though? We've talked so much about how it works and the cool challenges that you get to tackle, but what happens? Here's what I'm going to say. Clarabelle is the best. But first, before we meet Clarabelle, we first meet Sir William Meanwell. And yes, they all have wonderful names, if you have not picked up on that. Sir William Meanwell brought his much younger wife, Lady Meanwell, um, to the city for the first time. So she's, she's a young woman, finally getting into the urban landscape. And unfortunately, being in the city, she realizes that there are so many younger, shall we say, hotter men than she's ever seen in the country before. She did not know that she had more options than dear sweet Sir William Meanwell, while they're staying in the city, they're staying in the home of Rightwit. So Rightwit is a, a gallant and a rake who keeps getting and then losing money all the time. He's in debt and he hopes to get his sister, Leonora, who is very responsible. She's very kind, which of course means that she's exasperated by her brother Rightwit to try and solve problems is is hoping he can find a rich dude to marry Leonora to. Outside of that, we meet Swallow, who is a lawyer, who is mentioned in the subtitle of this play. The, the full title of this play is The Frolics or The Lawyer Cheated. And Swallow is our lawyer. He has given Rightway a bunch of money here and there and never has gotten paid back. And so is just kind of over it and is done with dealing with Rightwit. Swallow also happens to be the father to the beautiful Clarabelle and wants to get Clarabelle married. And she's kind of interested in that too, but everyone that her dad offers, they're a bunch of clowns and idiots as far as she's concerned. So she is interested in getting married, but only on her own terms. It's very reminiscent of the uh, Portia Nerissa scene from Merchant, mm. uh, where they're just like naming all these suitors and Portia just 
tears them apart comedically. Maybe Portia is a better comparison point than Beatrice. Well, I mean, Clarabelle is, is Beatrice. She's Kate. She's Rosalind. She's Portia. She's all of these people. Yeah. That's one of the things that drew us into this play and really yeah. solidified it for us was, was her. So surprise, surprise, after Clarabelle says no to all of these suitors offered up by her father, enter the rakish right wit. And they quickly realize that they have met their match. So in the in the E and F plots, <laughs> so there's two wealthy uh, country suitors who are basically the, the fools, the clowns, the idiots, uh, and their names are Sir Gregory and believe it or not, Mr. Zany. So one is a knight and one his name's Mr. Zany. <laughs> and they want to get married. They both come to the city. Yeah, Swallow sends for them to, to try to court his daughter. But it all happens right in the middle of right wit also wooing Clarabelle. So Clarabelle, after this one meeting with Rightwit, because one's all it takes, right? She's like, I've met my match, somebody who can finally keep up with me. However, she also kind of gets who Rightwit is. So she disguises herself as a man and she goes to the local tavern to warn Rightwit because her father, Swallow, is um, trying to arrest him. I think Clarabelle's sort of like into the bad boy that is right way in a way that might be problematic. Like maybe she thinks she can change him or something, but either way, he's not boring to her. She feels like they can keep Mm. up with each other, but she's still like, I'm not going to let him know that I'm into him because I'm not that kind of girl. So that's why she dresses up as a boy. Like I'll dress up as a boy to go find him in this tavern and just like, let him know real quick and get away before he realizes it's me. So swallow the lawyer is trying to go arrest right Um, Clarabelle, just to recap, uh, Clarabelle disguises a man, has her Rosalind moment, and goes to warn Rightwit, which Rightwit is rightly, haha, charmed by. So Rightwit, he has left Sir Gregory and Mr. Zany at the bar. He's trying to get them to be saddled with the payment for all the drinks. They're trying to squirrel out of that. There's some drag that happens, and it's wonderful and hilarious. Basically, Rightwit keeps trying to leave Sir Gregory and Mr. Zany with with the bag. Right. So throughout all of this A plot and maybe a little C plot that's happening, lest we forget our remember the meanwhiles back from the top of the play. Lady Meanwhile is being wooed by get ready for this name, Sir Make Love, much to the chagrin of Sir Meanwhile. And it's funny because Sir Meanwhile is like trying to ride this balance between allowing his wife some space to like enjoy her vacation and enjoy her social status and like be who she is. But he's got a servant in his ear constantly telling him like, hey, you're being an idiot and she's cuckolding you. The first time I read this play, they reminded me a little bit of Kelly and Ryan from The Office. They either like really, really are just calling each other out on their BS or falling all over themselves being like, I'm just kidding. I'm so sorry we got in a fight. I'm so sorry we fought. I love you so much, but don't tell me what to do. How dare you be jealous? I can't believe you're, oh, I will never. Oh my gosh, I'm sorry. You're my favorite spouse ever. It's hilarious how whiplashy it is. So that's what's happening in our B plot. But if you thought that everything was all like going well with the Clarabelle and Rightwit situation, Rightwit and his friend Filario were actually in jail. (laughs) And Clarabelle, they have like a bit of a, I think he's like embarrassed and he doesn't want to deal. And he kind of tells her like, go away and he'll manage it himself. And she's like, oh, are you really? Because you haven't been able to to this point. But if you think that's the case, then fine, I'll go. And they kind of have like a pause in their little 
courtship. But now they're in jail and Clarabelle finds out they're in jail and she takes the high road and decides to, yeah, I know Wright says he doesn't need my help, but clearly he does and I'm gonna go help him. And she shows up, she tricks the turnkey into releasing Wright and Flario and she breaks them out of jail and she sings a song while she's doing it. Which is also such a great scene. And it's a great scene that gives Clarabelle a lot of agency. She gets to call Rightwit out on his BS and basically be like, all right, this is it. Take it or leave it. Clearly, like, you're wrong and I'm better than you, but I still want to be with you. And so... Also, talk about, like, ride or die. Yeah, 100%. You know, she's coming through and releasing him from jail. You don't find a better partner than that. And then it's when they get out that Rightwit's like, oh, man, I thought I would never want to marry anyone. And she's like, yeah, I know. If only you could get my dad's permission, then I guess I would also go along with marrying you. And that's when they hatch their plot in mm-hmm. Act 5 for Rightwit to show up at Swallow's house, dressed as a complete stranger, asking for legal advice in the middle of the night about how he wants to marry someone that his family doesn't approve of. But because Swallow is that archetype who is the pantalone and kind of really just interested in money... You know, somehow Rightwit gives him, I assume, the, his meager life savings at this point and says, dear Mr. Lawyer, sir, if you wouldn't mind, would you meet later tonight and marry me privately in a private ceremony, me and my beloved, here's some money. And Swallow says, oh, sure. Yeah, of course, that's fine. I'll, I'm happy to do that business for you, not knowing that it's Rightwit that's going to secretly marry his daughter. So, yeah, now we're at Act 5 already. Yes. As you might expect, everything kind of wraps up well. And there is a subplot we haven't mentioned all that much. There's this French bod who's in town, who's kind of like, you know, the life of the party. She's throwing a lot of parties. I think the important element of this last party, because I'm pretty sure Rightwit asks her to throw a masquerade ball, basically as the cover for all of this. So she's like, yeah, I'll throw a party. It's like my favorite thing to do. She throws a last minute party, invites everyone in town, tells them to all like put on their fanciest little masks. And that's how Rightwit and Clarabelle are able to get married in disguise. It's so funny, though. There's, like, a really funny reveal scene. It's like it goes down the line of, like, Mr. Zany's like, haha, I have fooled everyone. I have married the Honorable Clarabelle. And then that person unmasks and, like, just kidding, it's another B-plot character. And everyone's like, it's not Clarabelle. And then Sir Gregory's like, haha, joke's on you. I have married the Honorable Clarabelle. And that person unmasks and it's not Clarabelle. And we just go up the line until we finally discover that Rightwit and Clarabelle have been married the biggest gasp of everyone on stage. And married by her father. The lawyer cheated. That's the plot. It goes from everyone's horny, wants to get married, and ends up with horny people getting married in the right order, sort of, maybe? Look, it's about the journey. It really is. There was a responsibility, right, that we felt for this being what we assume is the world premiere production of this. And so we wanted to try to honor as much of Full Wheel's story as possible. All that to say, there is some moral ambiguity about like, are these our heroes at the end? And that is up to uh, producers and directors and company members to decide how to handle. You are definitely going to have some conversations in the rehearsal room about consent during this process. (laughs) Yes, highly advise bringing on an intimacy choreographer there are also a few lines that i absolutely love in this play but if i could only pick one i feel like this excellent insult i just want to throw in here spawn of a toad thou liest 
and their lie savors worse than the garbage of the devil. <laughs> Stinky burn. Like, what is devil garbage? <laughs> I have to memorize that one and launch that in my, in my worst enemies. Right. History. Well, I will say, you know, Elizabeth Powell certainly wrote quite a frolic here. Um, what do we know about Elizabeth herself? Not much. Basically, almost nothing. If you're looking at our website and you're looking for her portrait, you'll notice that we have a painting there, but with the eyes crossed out because we have no idea what she looked like. We know she was an English woman. We know that she wrote three plays. One is Entirely Lost. The other is The Faithful Virgins, which, as far as I know, only exists in manuscript at the University of Oxford. So if you are listening to this podcast and you're somehow thinking, well, I'm at the University of Oxford, or I have a cool friend at the University of Oxford who would actually be super down to go um, read or scan that play and send it to us, uh, please call me. But this play, The Frolics, is the play we have. Um, and there's a really kind of fun story about how it was discovered in the 1970s in like a just a pile of papers and they found it at Cornell. They just like came upon this script. And so it's been recently unearthed and man, it would be so cool if the one that's lost also just like appears out of almost thin air. I'm fairly certain the Frolics was kind of like forgotten about or lost for years and years and years because it was cataloged mm -hmm. in the law library because folks saw the title as the lawyer cheated and cataloged it incorrectly. No, wow. oh, that's so funny. Okay, other details we might know about Elizabeth Polwheel. She was likely the daughter of a vicar. She married a minister, um, if that's the right person. So we think that that's how her life unfolded, which is very funny given how bawdy this play is. If that's true, if that's who this is, she wrote this play at around 20 years old, and this was before she was married. I'll jump in that our scholars, Judith and Robert, have conjectured that one of the reasons this play may not have been produced, whereas The Faithful Virgins, there is notes of a production history on, is that if she was part of this very religious family, that she may not have wanted to put her name out there doing this really bawdy sex comedy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's notable that The Frolics was the first comedy written for a professional production in England, which is pretty cool. I think something that's really useful to keep in mind about this play, when we're talking about it in the restoration bucket, she's really writing in the early restoration. And while I am not an expert in this, dearest Judith and Robert are, and they really point out that she is way ahead of the trend here. She writes this really bawdy sex comedy before that was in fashion. So she's a trendsetter. Yeah. Absolutely. The Faithful Virgins was around 1670, and potentially The Frolics was also written around 1670. That's also when Offer Ben was writing. Offer Ben's first play was 1670, as far as we know, I believe. Again, when we say first, like, she's one of the first women writing with the potential for production even before Offer Ben. And she writes in the preface of The Frolics that she is a, quote, unfortunate young woman haunted by poetic devils. 
And now we have one of our favorite scenes from the play. This is the top of Act Two, where Clarabelle and Rightwit finally meet. And we have the wonderful Hedgepig Ensemble members, Jory Murphy, playing Rightwit, and Sky Pagan, you know her, you love her from our podcast, playing Clarabelle. Who's there? A man. How should I know that? Appear, and I will satisfy thee. As I live, a handsome fellow, I must prate with him. Now, sir, your business? You shall dispatch it, if you please. Why, so I will, if that be all. I pray, be gone. The door gapes to swallow you. Will you exit? How she smirks and simpers. Pretty airy rascal, I cannot from my heart leave thee yet. Prithee, what art? A maid. Oh, tis pity thou shouldst be one. Let me make the other. I am not at my last prayer yet to cry, Come any, good lord, any. Thou art no kin of the fellow of this house, certainly. Very right. He is neither my uncle nor cousin, but even my own natural father, as he terms it. The pox he is! Why, he never got a hair of thee. No, he got me all, sir. All. The devil a did! Was thy mother handsome? The original copy of me. Without question, then, thou hadst some other father than the merely supposed lawyer Swallow. You'll go near to make me a bastard presently, adieu. Nay, we must not part yet. Thy very eyes tell me thou wilt stay a little longer. I must needs kiss thee. <gasps> you will not offer it. Then would you laugh at me? But I'll give you no cause. Thy skin's pure, teeth white, lips soft, breath sweet, eyes sparkling. Would we were in a wilderness together. You dare as well be hanged as serve me so again, you saucy- Oh, excellent! Dost thou dare me to do it? Well, once more, and you shall see what I dare do then. Get out. Thou makest a dog on me. Have a care I do not fasten on thee. Wilt thou be kind a little and... Do what? That is in fashion most and ever was since the world began. If thou snows not the mode, lead me to thy bed and I will teach it thee and make thee perfect in the fashion. Dost understand me? Partly. But before you are my schoolmaster, pray let me know you a little better. What's your name? My name and nature are no kin. Right wit, men call me. But thy father knows I am a fool. So does his daughter, too, if you be he. Did you not chaffer away a brave estate for wine, pox, and wenches? Precious merchandise. Pretty abusive devil. My father will provide me another bedfellow, I assure you, to teach me the mode you talk of. However... I'll cross myself when I but hear you named. Hang me if I love thee not, past sense and reason. Although thy father is a cutthroat rascal who gulls such addle-brained puppies out of their estates as I am and formerly covers his roguery with a damned cloak of law, my business hither was to curse him to his great master, the devil, before he should by bargain in the statute of hell fetch him. But for thy sake, I'll now forbear. Peace! Issue of a nightmare, abusive fiend! <sighs> Here 
there's witchcraft in everything this fellow does. My soul is ready to run out my eyes after him. I fear I shall be fool enough and madwoman together to fall in love with him. But I will resist it with an Amazonian courage. Love is but a swinish thing at best. I'll in and study to forget him. If twill not be, I'll study how to get him. Great. Thanks so much, Jory and Skye. Just a couple of things I have to shout out. Obviously, Mary Baldwin University and the Shakespeare and Performance Program, our amazing cast. You can see the cast list of this production on the Wikipedia page for Elizabeth Polwheel, my colleagues that are faculty at the program. Mary McDermott, who was really the reason that we were able to come down and produce this work with these amazing theater makers, Natasha Reinhardt, who was our intimacy choreographer, and of course, all of our curators and fans and supporters at Hedgepig. Thank you for joining us for the Frolics episode of This is a Classic, the Expand the Canon podcast. Learn more at expandthecanon.com. If you believe in the importance of expanding the canon, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to this podcast. And then hit the share button and forward it along to a friend, colleague, or professor. For info on what's up next, you can follow us on Instagram. At Hedgepig Ensemble Theater. Facebook. Slash Hedgepig Ensemble Theater. Or join our mailing list at hedgepigensemble.org. You can also support this effort by donating at the link in the comments below. Again, I'm Mary Candler. And I'm Emily Lyon. Thank you again to our special guests, Sarah Himes and Gregory John Phelps. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Bye.